Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of Fandom, What Sports Fans Actually See. As a reminder, this is a 10-episode series covering 10 topics through which fans use sports to analyze and give meaning to different everyday aspects of their lives. We have a very special guest today, Clay Skipper, not just a friend from high school, but now a staff writer at GQ Magazine, as well as host of the GQ podcast Airplane Mode and YouTube series Above Average Joe. Through his role at GQ, he's interviewed a number of athletes such as Steph Curry, Baker Mayfield, Draymond Green, Joel Embiid, and most recently, Patrick Mahomes, who was featured as the cover of GQ's August issue. I had him on to discuss superlatives in sports, such as why we care about watching highlights and why we get a kick out of statistical streaks, whether it be a team's or individual streak. Clay and I try to define what it means to achieve greatness by using examples in sports as we debate whether greatness is more aptly defined as having a long career of being pretty good or having a shorter yet legendary career. So I hope you enjoy this episode about superlatives in sports with Clay Skipper. Clay Skipper, thanks so much for coming on. How you doing? Good, man. Long time no see. Yeah, it's been... Well, it's been this is the end of high school. It's just like... Don't say how long. Don't say how long. Don't, don't, uh, don't date us. Okay, fine. <laughs> fine, fine, fine. No, it's uh, been what? What's that? So, uh, 12 years? 12 years? Since the end of high school? Is it been, oh, yeah, it's 12 years. I don't know why I think about freshman year. Maybe that was my peak in high school. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, what a long, strange trip it's been. I'm excited to have you. I love your work, whether it's through GQ or Airplane Mode. I think I mentioned this to you. I think you're one of the more sharper... I don't, want, I don't know if I say up and coming. Like You're here. You're present. <laughs> I like the way you think about sports. And as I do with all my guests, I'm very curious as to your life as a sports fan. So I'm not talking about playing sports. I'm not talking about you know anything other than your resume of life when it comes to the evolution of play skippers fandom. So for five wow. to ten for five to ten minutes, can you tell me a little bit about the ups, the downs, the upkeep of your sports fandom, maybe through growing up, high school, college, and 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 now? Certainly. I can't promise it'll be five to ten minutes, but we'll start and see see where it goes. Yeah, I mean the ups and downs of my fandom. I, so I mean, I'm now trying to think like the first, the first conscious memories I have of sports fandom probably dates back to when I was living in LA, when I was a very small child, moved there. My family moved there when I was two months old. And so my first memories of sort of sports fandom comes through, I guess, sports memorabilia, which was, uh, I have a brother who's four years older and in our LA backyard, of course, it was always perfect and sunny and beautiful in LA. Now that I'm starting to tell us, it's definitely going to be five, 10 minutes. It's probably going to be like 20, 25 minutes. Oh, this is um, how it works. This is how it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. sports, sports uh, is a big part of our lives. Let's talk about totally, it. Totally, totally. And so anyway, to make the beginning of this very long story short, to make this chapter short, my dad bought my brother and I matching uni- like the exact same uniforms of different teams. So I had the LA Raiders and my brother had the LA Rams. And so we used to put those things on helmets, like jersey pants and go outside and play against each other which i thought was very very fun and very cool like remembering it back but it wasn't until we moved to the east coast to connecticut where we met and both peaked 
way back when. And that was when I really became sort of a big sports fan. And I was, you know, I fall, you know, you can run, you know, this Adam, but you can sort of draw a line down diagonally down Connecticut. And it divides the Boston sports fans from the New York sports fans. I'm glad of course, only in retrospect, because I grew up a New York sports fan that I did not fall on the evil side of that line. But so my, my sports teams growing up were the Yankees, the Knicks, the Rangers, and the Jets. And so the one weird one there is the Jets, because normally if you fall with the Yankees, you also go with the Giants. And if you fall with the Mets, then you go with the Jets. But that gets right into sort of I guess the overall theme of my sports fandom, which is my, it goes to my dad ultimately, which is basically I picked whatever teams my dad rooted for. And I'm sure we'll get more into this as the episode unfolds. But like my fandom really is a, has always been about sort of like that tether to my dad and to my brother. Cause we would grow up watching Yankees and watching the Knicks and uh, watching the Jets, less so because the Jets were always terrible and the Yankees had, have always been pretty good. And the Knicks, believe it or not, were good at one point. And so we would always watch those games together. And it was just sort of about being together and watching the teams. And then also because of my dad, who went to UNC Chapel Hill, we were huge Tar Heel fans. And it's very easy, sort of like the Yankees. It's very easy to be a UNC Tar Heel fan, especially in your room for the basketball, because they've just been so good for so long. So those were really the teams, and I said Rangers, but we weren't really a weren't really a hockey family. So really, it was the Knicks, the Yankees, the Jets, and, and the Tar Heels. And most religiously, you know, I will admit that uh, there may be some fair weather uh, fandom here, but we were mostly into the Yankees, which the '90s was a great time to be a Yankees fan, and uh, the Tar Heels. Who, frankly, it's been good to be a Tar Heels basketball fan for almost my entire life. So. Yeah, so that's basically been the story of my fandom. Certainly, there have been ups and downs. I've been, I'd say the last couple of years have been, the last 10 years has been pretty rough with the exception of the Yankees sort of bounce back and the Tar Heels have had some good years in there. But yeah, I would say now at, at uh, 30, I've sort of hit my nadir of sports fandom, both in the sense of like, I'm watching less sports than always, but also caring about teams less like and some of that is again probably fair weather fandom like certainly when the Yankees are good again I get excited but I just find myself consuming less less sports these days I don't totally know why but yeah it's just so that's that's sort of where I'm at I don't know if that was uh gave you a sense of my full story of my fandom but that's sort of the origins and and teams I root for I think it did kind of give like the bullet points and I definitely resonate with like you do get a little more or less emotionally invested, you know, when you have other things, job stuff, girlfriend, you're dealing with COVID. It doesn't seem like (laughs) being upset that like the Knicks lost, you know, yet again should ruin your day. Like it once did when we were younger. Yeah. Yeah. I I am curious as to like, again, I, I always like to use this word maintenance and upkeep because when you were in high school and college like you knew i mean or it might be after college like you knew that the tar heels and yankees were two of the most storied franchises in their respective sports i mean they had 
history, they had legacy, they had famous players. And then you also like in the middle, we're also a Knicks and a Jets fan in, and while there's more story, there's uh, Knicks are like, I guess still a storied history, even though it's been 20 years, but like, how did you reconcile with this yin and yang, this polarization of Yankees and Tar Heels on one side being part of your identity and then Knicks and Jets being something? I mean, am, am I overthinking it? Like, was this conflicting at all? I'm, I'm very intrigued of like how you would reconcile with the, the oscillations. Because, because the Yankees and, and Tar Heels are so good and the Knicks and Jets have historically not been, you mean? Yeah, and you root for two because you alluded to the thing of like Mets, Jets, Yankees, Giants. Yeah, yeah. And, and I and I know that that comes from the history of the stadiums. Giants used to play at Yankee Stadium, Jets used to play at Shea Stadium. But what has happened is that those two have been associated where the Yankees are the Yankees, Giants have won two Super Bowls in the last fifteen years, and the Jets haven't made the playoffs in a decade, and the Mets are the Mets. Like, I mean, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was tough. Well, so I, I always felt, I mean, well, first of all, I, I'm just going to show you how good of a fan I am. I didn't even know that about the, about the stadiums, to be honest. You thought um, it was like a geographical thing? Yeah, I had no idea. I thought it was like a sensibility thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because um, when, I, when I like did like a short-lived blog for uh, six years ago, I came up with a fun alliteration based on geographical fan bases. I called the Yankees and Giants the Westchester winners and the, the, the Mets and Jets the Long Island losers. Because usually Westchester yeah, is yeah. Yankees. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so. so what I guess how I felt, I mean, I felt superior because I'll give you my rationale. Because the thing that I had was the Trump was the Yankees, which was the Trump card, right? So I, don't, I guess I'm trying to remember if I felt conflicted. Like, I don't remember a lot of people giving me grief about oh you root for the yankees and jets like that doesn't make sense and maybe that's because we were in connecticut so i was easy to find pockets of yankees fans and pockets of jets fans and to sort of say whatever to the mets and giants fans but i do remember distinctly thinking like okay well the yankees are by far the best if you're talking about those four teams so yankees mets jets and giants the yankees are by far the best team and the mets are terror like really bad right. and then jets and giants were a little closer like yes the giants in the last 10 years have been way better but back then the jets and giants were not super far apart if you remember the jets glory days when we had vinnie testaverde we were actually okay pennington and, yeah you know like for the yeah. for the aughts i think we made and then obviously two years of rex ryan so we made the playoffs yeah. like every other year oh yeah it, mvp runner-up chad pennington i believe that's I, know I think it's the second most votes one year. That's crazy. I know he won comeback player twice in his career. Yeah. Yeah. But um so yeah, I don't know. I think I've just felt like you can think whatever you want, but I'm a Yankees fan. We're we're the best team. So it was like definitely a little bit of that Yankees elitism, I'm sure. So the 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 Yankee elitism trumps the the Jets and Knicks haplessness as far as identity. Yeah. 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 And the Giants-Jets thing didn't ever really feel like that big of a rivalry to me. Like, it was amplified for me because my best friend, Dan Fieber, was a Giants fan and I was a Jets fan. He was also a Duke fan. And we can get to that. 
talk about yeah. maybe the only people that can rival people from Boston for worst people on earth. But um, so Dan, Dan and I already had the Tar Heel Duke thing. So then to add Jets and Giants on top of it, it sort of made, it, it sort of created an artificial rivalry a little bit. But Jets and Giants didn't really have, um, you know, we hated the Patriots. We didn't hate the Giants. And so we could always sort of lean on Boston as our enemy. And New York could sort of uh, come together as a family against Boston. You know what I mean? So it didn't feel necessarily like, if you were a Jets fan, you had to dislike the Giants or vice versa. I mean, I did because I wanted Dan to feel pain all the time because that's the type of best friend I am. But, uh, but yeah. I, I think, well, it's very funny timing-wise that you bring up the, the Boston thing because last week's episode I recorded with my friend Anthony, who's a Boston sports fan, and the episode was about winning and just this anomaly you know, do Boston fans appreciate what they're going through the last 20 years? You know, because sometimes you can't see you know, the forest, if you're in the middle of the trees, you know, Boston sports the last 20 years, I mean, forget about, it. it's not even just the championships. It's, it's the first place finishes. It's the consistency. It's the predictability. Oh, yeah. Like for all four sports. I mean, those are four well-run franchises where it's a, it's a well-run businesses. Like those are well-run businesses. They, they maintain and they, they know what they're doing. Whereas like, for my teams, Mets, Jets, Knicks, and Islanders, I always think that like the way, the way I've never I've never seen the championship in in thirty years. So that's like one hundred twenty seasons. Oh, I've never seen championship. Yeah, and those you know, it's I always feel like sports just happens to them. There's no like, there's no well run franchise of like consistency. Like we, it doesn't seem like there's ever like a five to ten year plan. You know, nothing with like the Dodgers are going have, are going through right yeah. now or like what the Ravens do where they're perennially in it all the time. And obviously like the Patriots Steelers, but like sports just sometimes happens, you know, there's, I don't know. It's not randomness, but I just think that like Boston knows what they're doing. And I think we envy that. But we also understand that there's something evil about it. And <laughs> yeah, my curiosity is, and we'll get in, we'll get into the, you know, the topics of the episode at hand. I, I guess as far as like, how you identify sounds like the Yankees, you know, being premier, being, being on top, um, that supersedes losing, which I, I think if you, and it, it, this is like, you know, what a psychologist or what, a, you know, what a therapist might say, if they want to like understand your disposition and your personality, because it's a black and white cookie. Some people prefer white, some people prefer black, like you've chosen, you've chosen to take the positive outlook. Yeah. And, and totally. I, yeah. And I know that there are some people, and you're a positive person. I think there's some people that take would take the negative aspect and focus more on the Jets and the Knicks. And the you mean that, and, and and that and focus on oh I'm a lose like I, right. I'm a sad sack or lose like yeah right. or like I'm right yeah 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 or maybe yeah. that the Yankees have only won one championship in 20 years and focus on that. You know, sorry to bring that up. That's true. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I feel like okay, so well. Yeah, obviously championships are important, but I feel like the thing with the Yankees is they it always feels like they're in contention. You know, like I'm not trying to argue here that like being in contention, you should get a you should get a trophy for being in contention, but I just mean as a fan, it feels more like I think I remember them being more winning than they actually are because it's not like the Jets or Nick where it's like this is so bleak 
that I know from day one of the season that there's no chance we're going to the postseason. Whereas the Yankees, if they've gone to the ALCS a few times or the World Series or been cheated out of a World Series by the Astros, it still feels like they got have gotten very close, right? So yeah, but yeah, I think I definitely gravitated towards the winning side of my fandom and made that more part of my identity than the than the losing side. But uh, over the last ten years, the Knicks and the Knicks have been so terrible that I think it has superseded any success that the Yankees might have had. Got it. And one last question before about your fandom before we go into the, the topics, and you know we'll discuss you, the sports fan, a lot more in this episode. But specifically, because I know that like your the weight of emotion that you have towards these teams has kind of waned over the last couple of years. Do you remember for Tar Heels? And I apologize if I forget like the last, the shining moments, if you will, of the Tar Heels. Oh, I remember them. But (laughs) what is more vivid right now? The the winning or I hate to break it, the Chris Jenkins shot. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sometimes we'll get in the highlights. Sometimes I watch that highlight back. I'd say I watch that highlight back once every quarter. It's a quarterly exercise for me. And every time Marcus Page hits the shot, which, by the way, is one of the greatest time three-pointers in sports that nobody oh. will ever remember. Oh, yeah, that's An like... unbelievable circus shot. It's like the Rajai Davis home run that tied it up against the Cubs, the, the Indians, bottom of the eighth against Chapman. Yes. It's like that yes. thing where people will not remember it, but that was such an amazing totally. shot. Totally, totally. But I watched that clip back and Marcus Page hits the shot. And every time I'm like, it's going to overtime. Even though I've seen it like 17 times, I'm like, this time it's going to be different. But um, I, it's a mix. But I would say actually the winning. But also like the, the Carolina thing is so deeply tethered to like my relationship with my dad and my brother because we had a, we had a, a tradition that – and that every time Carolina final four, we would go. And like, I was very privileged to be in a position to be able to do that. But yeah, every time Carolina made the final four, we would go, my dad, my brother and I, and my uncle who also went to Carolina. And, um, and so I remember being at the 1997 final four in San Antonio. Still remember that. I remember being at the 2005 final four, they won in St. Louis, 2009. Where was that? 2009 maybe it was New Orleans and and then 2000 oh and then 2012 or 2015 was in Houston I think there was one more in there maybe I missed but um but yeah I, I remember I remember all of those like I have distinct memories of all of those and like I can remember shots I can remember the 2005 championship game between the Illinois Fighting Illini are they the Fighting Illini or just yeah. the Illini I thought Fighting Illini all right. And the Tar Heels, I can remember like missed shots from Luther Head, who is the shooting guard in Illinois, three pointers that I thought were going to go in that he missed. So I can remember like very specific moments in Carolina. I mostly remember good ones, but I also remember a lot with Chris Jenkins shot. I remember Austin Rivers hitting a three to win the game at the buzzer over uh, Tyler Zeller. So mm. it's like Good moments and bad moments, they're all sort of indelible. I think to me, I hold on. Definitely my memory goes has more of those good moments going back. But you remember the bad ones too because they, they really hurt. Well, I mean, yes, I know bad ones. I, I again, <laughs> I'm glad you were able to rattle off stuff from like 20, 25 years ago or whatever, where something that's so vivid like a couple years ago should stand out more. Yeah. But, 
but I For love sure. it. Um, so yeah, so that's a, you know, talking about highlights is a great segue to the meat of this episode. This is going to be a fun one. This is going to be, this is going to be, you know, I would say this is going to tap into like the deep recesses of our minds as far as like understanding the metaphor, you know, one of the metaphors that sports has to offer, one of the lens through which we look at, use, look at sports and use it to like project onto the world. And we're going to, you know, we're talking about highlights and then we're going to talk about streaks and slumps because I'm, I'm very fascinated with this idea of what we choose as a highlight. And I know it might seem very trivial. Well, you know, Adam, it's the best plays. It's the most entertaining plays. But if you, if you look at like, let's say like a franchise's highlight reel or like a year in review, you know, what, there are certain things that it's, that are like societal virtues or values that when we're watching a great play being made or something that's very significant to the success of your team or success, it makes the moment. It's like, there's something greater than just athletic prowess. There's something greater than just hitting a 500 foot home run. It speaks to something. It's just high achievement. It's, it's an uh-huh. athletic achievement, but it stands for something as, as a high achievement that can be you know, represented in terms of greatness for other aspects of our life. Huh. Why? I mean, you know, this is a very general question, but like, why do we like highlights? Like, why do we care about sports center, top 10 MLB cut four, like a condensed game? Are there things that we see that like mean something to us, especially let's be nostalgic, right? If I have like the 1999 New York Yankees year in review, they're choosing certain things. What yeah. makes, what makes a highlight? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, there's something about a highlight that, uh, you know, I was thinking about this before the before we got on, and I was sort of comparing it to, like, old movie clips. Hmm. Like, you know, like, there are certainly tons of movie clips on YouTube, but, like, and obviously, I'm, I'm a much bigger sports fan than I am a movie buff. Maybe that's all this comes down to, but I'm just thinking, like, why am I so drawn to watch highlights more so than movie clips? I think in a lot of ways, like for me, at least sports highlights are a lot more embodied. Like it, it, it actually is like a member, like I can watch a highlight and sometimes remember, like, especially if it's like, obviously I'm just recalling UNC highlights, but even Yankees games, like the Aaron Boone Homer, I can remember exactly where I was and with and who I was with even a team I'm not a fan of allegedly the giants. <laughs> I remember David tired the David Tyree catch, right? Like I remember where I was the aforementioned uh, Dan Fever's basement. And so there's something cool about like reliving a moment, right? Like I, the other day I was watching a movie clip. I was watching like a clip from the big short, but like, I don't remember where I watched that. <laughs> and also like that clip obviously doesn't, it's just not as resonant out of context as like watching somebody do something transcendent athletically on a field or a baseball diamond or a court or whatever, that moment can be sort of magical out of context or you get the context because you have the score right there and the time on the bottom line. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but I thought like that was just maybe a way into this was I was like comparing it to movies and, and, and trying to parse why it is that I'm so much more drawn to watch a snippet of a, of a high of a sports game than I am, you know, a snippet of a movie, which is another form of enter- entertainment. Yeah. No. And again, like it's a very esoteric out there question, 
And I love the analogy that you made to movies. Cause I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think about like why, you know, it's like, you know, my, one of my favorite movies is like goodwill hunting. Why I love the, it's not your fault or like the scene where, yeah. or the scene where like, it's like, you know, the best part of my day is, you know, when I think you're gone, yeah. like, but I'll, I'll watch that. It'll evoke. I don't, I don't know if it's as much emotion as sports highlights do. I think it's like, I am here now. There is no place that I'd rather be. Like I am having a moment with these characters. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling something, but I need a lesson that's learned, right? So there's the emotion side, but also when I'm watching these clips from these, from these great movies or these great clips, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lesson or, you know, there's another aspect where it's like, I'm entertained. Like, I just want a good laugh. I'll put on a clip yeah. of like the Simpsons or whatever. Like, I just want to laugh. That might be more of the emotional aspect, but I, for me, like, for me, like, I love learning lessons. And I think sports is a very, very transparent way to get emotion involved with a lesson. But other examples for me, it's just like, I, I understand that we know like some tropes about why we care about sports as fans, what we're seeing sports teaches us about like competition, grit, perseverance, determination. But I actually did like a little exercise where I watched the highlight of the 2015 Mets. Cause you know, there's like a 15 minute highlight film on YouTube. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you had to do that. Sorry. Oh, it's sorry. It wasn't the 2015 Mets. It was the entire Mets franchise. We don't have enough highlights. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think like the 98 Yankees probably have more highlights than the entire Mets franchise. Paul O'Neill, Bernie Williams. I can still name that starting lineup. I think. Yeah. It's, it's, that's, that's a great lineup. And this was like, (laughs) that's a lot of gritty players. Oh my goodness. Chuck Knobloch. Sorry. I interrupted you. No, no, it's okay. So I'm just going to read off again. This is the Mets 50 year franchise highlight reel. And I'm going to read off some, some highlights that it's, it's not about the highlight itself. It's about what it represents. So for example, like we could start out a Todd Pratt home run, right? Chris Berman calls that's in the playoffs in 99. That's him being the, one of the most unlikely heroes to hit a home run. Wilmer Flores more recently crying on the field. That uh-huh. is about passion. That is about someone who knows what it's like to be homegrown and wants to be that who wants to play for a team who feels unconditional, who feels unconditional love. You know, Mike Piazza's final at bat as a, as a Met, the end of an era, you know, what it means, Michael Conforto hitting two home runs in, in a world series game. That's about, you know, enjoying the moment as a young kid being in rarefied yeah. air. A lot of things are, are, you know, some things are milestones. Like when you hit, 500 home runs, 3,000 hits, and those, you know, 45 second clips are nice. But I just feel like when I'm watching like the history of a franchise, it's not just athletic prowess. There's something symbolic about what that team meant to people at this time mm-hmm. and what it means for the legacy of, of the franchise. But it can also tell, teach us a little bit about human feet, human ability. And I don't know. It's just like something I, I am just genuinely curious. I would love to watch other franchise highlight films and just think about what these little clips that they choose to edit and to put in what they're saying. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's well. First of all, that I assume that's the exhaustive list, right? That's all of the highlights. <laughs> yeah, I, I left that a bunch. <laughs> you have like one or two that you left out there. The yeah, I mean, they're telling a story in some ways, right? I mean, and yeah, I don't know. I think highlights like because you you did, said something there that struck me, which is you're saying you know it's a sort of a specific moment in time. And I think that is like, there's a real temporal aspect, you know, thinking about why we like highlights. Maybe the movies thing is a bad comparison because movies are scripted and they're sort of leading to a contrived ending. Whereas like a highlight is, is a moment in time sort of like cast in amber where it can only be what it was. But when it was live, like anything could have happened like any amount of infinite possibilities could have unfolded. And it's very cool to go back and relive that and be like, like referencing the UNC Marcus Page thing, like to go back in that moment and be like, I can remember the sense of possibility when he hit that shot and, and to sort of watch the next two seconds unfold where Chris Jenkins hits the, the shot from the wing and extinguishes all hope for Carolina fans. Like it's so cool to relive that that moment uh frame by frame and yeah i mean there's some like a real cool temporal aspect to it and like because it's real you see these guys and you can watch people on the court and 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 actually pause the highlight and be like in this second right before they release the shot look at all the faces and like all these guys are have no idea what's going to happen and it's very kind of cool to be like i know in a second from now how all their lives are drastically going to change and they don't yet know one specific moment. I think some of the magic is in that. I don't know, maybe not, but there's something very cool about that. I, I think the Marcus Page, because people, because people remember the game-winning shot, as you would most buzzer beaters. But Marcus Page shot from a... Not just, it's, it was the athleticism. It was the hope that yeah. you had. Yeah. I mean, the fact that he... The fact that he made that shot, because he wasn't supposed to. No, you're not supposed to make that shot. You're not supposed to be contorted uh-huh. in the air and, you know, tie up a game with three seconds ago in the, in the corner. Was it, was it in the corner? Where was it? It was where? from, like, the, the right sort of elbow near the bench. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, and it's one of those things where, like, you know, history is written by the winners. But, fuck, that is a great, that is a great, that was a great shot and people won't yeah. remember it unless you're a Tar Heels fan. And yeah. it also like, it got, it, it gets me thinking, and I've thought about this for, for, for years, you know, Mike Piazza's home run after nine 11. Yeah. You know, that moment lifted a city, lifted a nation. It was the first time anybody felt hope. I wonder what would have happened if the Mets lost that game? It was the bottom of the eighth. The Mets were down 2-1. It's a two-run homer, 3-2. And then Armando Benitez is our closer. Very shaky. Easily could have given up a run and like, or two runs and we lost it. But like, I think what you're saying, and like, you correct me if I'm wrong, but like, there's something special about the moment. Again, we're talking about highlights. So it's just a clip of a game taken out of context where that home run is poignant, it's majestic, it's beautiful mm-hmm. in itself. Yeah. And, and who knows? Like, if, if, if they lose, does it have the same meaning? You know what I mean? 
I don't know. It's a great question. Like, would we even remember that home run or be discussing it right now? Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, it's, a, it's, 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 yeah. Who knows? <laughs> it's, it's, but yeah, it's like yeah. A, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a poignant form of, um, time travel almost. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. I also think there's something to, you know, you bring up Marcus Page not being, not, you know, his body not supposed to be contorted that way. There is something very cool about seeing these guys do something sort of athletically transcendent with nothing but their, their bodies, right? Like I have the privilege and yeah, you have the privilege too of being able-bodied, right? So, but like, and so we could ostensibly do what they're doing. I mean, obviously like we can't, but it's kind of nuts to be like, Mark Spage is using the same set of arms and legs that I have. And he's doing this sort of magical thing. I also think that's why when you see someone like Steph Curry have such resonance, more so than LeBron James, I think, I think sometimes LeBron is underappreciated because what he's doing, he makes it look so easy that it's like just undervalued. But LeBron is, I think like, six eight two seventy right and Steph out there looks like he's not Steph is like six foot three and I'm sure he's like two ten or something. No right. probably not two ten but but Steph looks a little bit more human. And so you see him doing something and you're like, damn like that is unbelievable because it's like he's a human, I'm a human, but I can't do that. Like right. you know and that is sort of same thing with Piazza. It's like I can hold a bat in my hands, but I can't get it around on a 90 mile an hour fastball in that, in that, um, pressure packed of a moment. And so there's something about that too, I think is that makes these highlights stand highlights stand out. And so when you watch a highlight, do you feel, I don't know, it might be subconscious, but like, I guess the emotion that we get is like a projection. Like imagine if you were in that position or like, I, 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 I've never thought about this way, but yeah. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think I, I remember seeing um, on the outline you sent me, you sort of asked, like, what stories do we care about? And the things I think we care about, we seem to care about over and over again, are like dominance and greatness. And that seems to be like, that just seems to me like awe in some way. Like, oh, we can't, we can, I can't do what that person does. Like, and so, like, you look at LeBron James and you're like, I don't care what career you're in. Like, if you're the greatest house painter in the world, like LeBron's been the greatest basketball player for like 18 years, that stretch in any career, let alone basketball is like just unfathomable. And so in that sense, we look at greatness and we're like, wow, uh, that seems like something I've never be able to do. And we stand in sort of awe at the majesty of that person or that team or that franchise or whatever. And then the other story we care about is the underdog story. And that seems to me more of like, a story maybe born out of what you're talking about a fellowship, which is like, Oh, well, you know, if that person can score 50 points in a game, if that scrub can score 50 points in a game, then maybe I can. Or like, you know, a better example is I remember recently some hockey team had to call up like Joe Smith yep. For, yep. to come play goalie for them. Cause both their goalies were out. And it's like, Oh man, like that. We love yeah. an underdog. Cause it's like, that's, you know, I, Tim from accounting went and played for the, you know, exactly. the Oilers. Yeah, exactly. So. The, the Zamboni rider who plays in his like beer league. Hot, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that to, to your point about, do we see ourselves in them? 
I feel like greatness is maybe about distance because we're like, damn, that is just amazing. And then underdog, obviously, people who do underdog things in professional sports, we're not like them. I mean, that is that's an illusion we're harboring. Like they're still uh, at an elite, elite level. But I do think, you know, as humans, we're obsessed with stories and we tell ourselves the story of maybe, you know, we could be that underdog. I think that if the, if the greatness is about distance, I think the underdog is maybe a little bit more about like fellowship. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the dichotomy of greatness. I mean, it's like the underdog is like we see ourselves as the underdog because yeah. we're trying to get to that promised land of greatness. Like we need exactly. as, human, as human beings to self-actualize and to grow and what it means to become, you know, more fulfilled. You know, we don't want to stagnate. We want to, you know, we want to achieve greatness somewhere to keep moving. You know, the LeBrons of the world is like we put them on a pedestal, you know, because they're incredible. And like subconsciously, we want to aspire to that greatness. But the underdog yes. is more of an, of, of an identity. It almost comes back to what I was asking you about earlier with like, do you identify more as the Yankees and more of the, more of the Jets? Or, or do you identify more as the Yankees or more of the Jets? There's a little bit of both in everybody, right? Like no one's perfect. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we do see those underdog stories, when we do see the Cubs win the World Series, when we do see, you know, the Eagles finally win, I mean, it doesn't even matter about your sports fandom or like the rivalries, like those, for the, like those teams winning for the first time pretty much in like their respective franchise, let's just say the Cubs 108 years, the Eagles first time ever. It's like, I think about that and I was like, wow like the underdog, like the, the caterpillar has turned into the butterfly. Like it's a coming of age story. And the underdog has been become great. And that to me as a narrative is beautiful. Because I think we all want to achieve that, right? We all, we all want to achieve greatness, but also like know where we've come from. Yeah. 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 And I think it's remarkable that how universally loved underdogs are, right? Like, Every, I mean, not everybody, certainly, but the vast majority of casual sports fans were rooting for the Cubs, right? I mean, this just goes back again to how much uh, I dislike Boston sports fans, but I was just thinking about how Red Sox, I don't think people were rooting for Red Sox. I don't think people were like, man, I can't wait for the Red Sox to break the curse of the Bambino. But I, I, the, I, don't, yeah. I don't know, more so because it was a different time. I mean, remember, it was, it was all of Boston was just a disgruntled, very downtrodden fan base for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's, it is interesting to, to, to think about underdogs. I mean, you, especially like the, the best, the best example of this is March Madness. When you get a 13 seed in the Sweet 16 and everyone is rooting for them. Like Florida Gulf Coast, do you remember, remember them? Loyola, and, Chicago a couple of years ago. Exactly, yes, uh, with with what was her name? Sister Mary or whoever their 99 year old mascot Sister was. Jean, and, Jean. And Jean. Sister Jean. Exactly. And, um, yeah, and just everyone is rooting for them. And it's, it's just like an interesting sort of social experiment in the way that it just, everyone is like, yeah, we're behind, like, we're behind this team. I mean, it's like, you just never see people sort of come together in that way. Yeah. yeah. You're absolutely right. You put away your like, if you have allegiances for other teams, you put your allegiance away from a specific team that you've identified with and that you've attended games and invested in time and money 
Yeah. You put that team aside and, and then you naturally root for something that's a little more like you identify with the underdog. Mm -hmm. It is, it is wild that we all, you know, we tend to root. It's it's not split. Like the majority of people will root for the underdog. Yeah. 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 I I don't know exactly what that says. There's probably some easy, you, you majored in psychology. There's gotta be an easy like uh, psychology lesson there. I don't know what it is. I, I, I do think it goes back to, I think it goes back to, to growth. I think it, it's about what it means to, to live, to appreciate life because we don't want to, we don't want to stagnate. Even, even if we're, even if, even if we're content and fortunately have gratitude and can like kind of be here now and take this all in, you still want projects to do. And that's, you know, yeah. And, and, you know, think about it this way outside of sports. It's like, if you have everything and you're very grateful and you have money and you have love, what do a lot of people do? They like are philanthropists and they help out the underdog and they work on charities. And so it's about helping yourself grow, helping other people grow. So I think, you know, in terms of psychology, there's like the ought self and the actual self the actual self is who you are now. The ought self is like who you want to become. Cause we always want to strive. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be in like a narcissistic way of always wanting more. It's always wanting to, to better yourself and grow and achieve greatness, greatness. And, you know, with underdogs, underdogs are not just presented with a challenge, but a challenge that they can do. So, yeah, I mean, like, look, UMBC versus Virginia and like that. Yeah. That happened. 16 versus one happened. Yeah. It's done. That was a phenomenal. Some of the passion there for me was also out of the fact that Virginia plays the most boring basketball in the world. And oh, yeah. Always take the under with Virginia. Yeah, exactly. Are, are generally bad for the, uh, the brand of college basketball. So, I mean, I would, I would be remiss to say there weren't a good handful of people who were, who, who were grateful or, or just happy that Virginia won the whole thing the next year. Talk about a great narrative. Talk about, yeah. you know, someone who had his, their comeuppance was embarrassed, but like, again, a lot of people who, who are great and fall down to earth, you want to pick them right back up. You don't want people to stay down. You know, yeah. Yeah. you, you want to be a little uplifting. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think if you're not like a Duke or Maryland fan, you're probably rooting for Virginia a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Because, uh, because of what happened and they just got embarrassed and, uh, yeah. Bounce back. Bounce back. So, yeah, I mean, and, and pivoting to our next topic, which again, we're, we're talking about like how to look at greatness, how to assess greatness. A lot of what we do in sports, we have, a great lens through seeing people go through streaks in our life. And what I mean by that is that there's not something that's like quantifiable in our day to day of like, how many great days have you had in a row? Or like how many, how many good meals do you have? Are you like keeping stats or whatever? Are you doing tallies in a, in a, in a world of sports, which is very like statistic heavy, you know, we can track numbers and notice patterns. And within these patterns, it's an evaluation of either greatness or frankly, like suckiness. 
or mediocrity. <laughs> so we're going to do a deep dive into streaks now. Do you have a favorite streak? And let's just start of like a streak of greatness, a streak of... of yeah, yeah. We're prodigy, yeah. The ones that I found myself, you know, looking back, because like certainly all of them I've heard of, right? Like Brett Favre's streak, which that Brett Favre's streak is fairly remarkable because you think about how injured people in football get more so than any other sport. And the fact that I think he started like 297 games is maybe what it was. It's yeah. crazy. As a Jets fan, uh, I'm a little, we were eight and three with him. And then I think he bullied Mangini into keeping his streak alive <laughs> with a dislocated <laughs> arm shoulder, or whatever. And we went Ugh. one and four and missed the playoffs. So, Ugh. all right, continue. <laughs> that is like a pure a very pure aside from a very hurt Jets fan I could hear the pain in, in you know why Anec- anecdotally um, because that year I lived in Israel I did a gap year program and so I would stay up till 2 3 a.m wow and I remember you are a always being yeah I would go to a sports bar it's called Mike's Place popular like in the main street like Jerusalem and it, we lost to the Niners. We lost to the mediocre Seahawks. Like, I, I will always remember Brett Favre being like, get him, get him the fuck out. He can't throw. But anyway, sorry, I digress. That's why I remember. Brett Favre ruined your, Brett Favre ruined your gap year in Israel is what you're saying. Some people would say it. It did. Yes, some of my friends would say But, you know, so there's, there's great streets, like uh, streaks. And, like... Joe DiMaggio's hit streak, like that is phenomenal in terms of just like being able to step up and do that every game as the pressure is mounting over and over and over again. But the ones that stood out to me when I was looking at these lists were like the stretches. And of course you can only sort of hide these with the long lens of history. Like in the moment, there's no way that these are day to day. These are not exciting streaks, but was the Celtics winning eight straight years, which is like insane. Like we, you know, we talk about the Warriors and Cavs going to the title for five years in a row and the Warriors, Warriors win four or five years or three Three. or four, but eight years in a row. I mean, that's wild. And then the other one is the, which I think this one's actually a good mix of like the Celtic streak, which obviously took place over a decade. So again, day to day, you're not, it's not very exciting. And Joe DiMaggio's, which is taking place day to day, which is the UConn women's like 111 straight games, right? Because that is like, it's somewhere in between. It is, doesn't, not every play matters, but every game matters. And so you, and it is exciting on a day-to-day basis because it's like, is the next game the game they're going to lose? And mm. that one is really impressive. 111 straight games in your sport. I mean, that just takes like, a, I mean, they were, you know, people will say, oh, well, yeah, they were so much better than everyone else. But like, it doesn't matter. Virginia versus UMBC. It doesn't matter how much better you are. It takes one game to slip up. And for 111 straight games, which for a lot of those games, by the way, they were playing great teams because they're final fours in there. And so they didn't slip up once. That's like a real testament to, uh, to a team mentality. I would say that actually, I'm glad you brought that up. There were two points. Well, the UConn women's thing is, is, is really good because Unfortunately, like it does, college basketball, women's college basketball won't get the media hype, and not a lot of sports fans like know about the streak or really understand like how ridiculous winning 110 or 111 games is. 
And the point that you brought up, because when I was thinking, like I was thinking in my head, as soon as you brought that up, I was like, well, is it that impressive that, you know, they win a lot of games by at least 15, 20, sometimes 30 points. You know, they're clearly better than every, you know, than every team. And then you may, then you bring up the point that you're like UMBC Virginia, any given day could happen. So yeah. then I'm like, oh yeah. shit. That's <laughs> the, the point isn't about the dominance. It's about, or sorry, the point isn't about like how many times they won by like 30, 40 games. The fact that it, like, it, a streak continued yeah. that like, I mean, I don't know how you measure like how, how significant like 110 or 111 games, are, but like the fact that they never let up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, For, they, uh, yeah. But they must have been almost, that must be like four seasons almost. Yeah. Cause probably, it's probably 30 games a season, roughly a little more, maybe. Uh, yeah. Maybe it's three seasons, but either way, I mean, it's just wild. Yeah. They, that is, that is, Intense, and then they lost it at a buzzer beater. I think like Mississippi State or something. Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's 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 yeah. The one that I'd say is similar to that. It's not a streak exactly, but it's also the Warriors. I mean, winning seventy three of eighty two games is pretty insane. And in a, in a league like the NBA, where you know, the, like regular season NBA, the guys are not playing one hundred percent every night, and the Warriors just you know, they weren't in playoff mode every night and yet they still won 73 games. It's pretty crazy. Right. That is, that is remarkable. And again, like brought this up on last, my last podcast. Can we appreciate that record without them winning a championship or have we become, you know, a society or like, look, you know, have have we, have we become more about the ends justify the means and like, Mm -hmm. you know, the 2006 Cardinals who won 83 games win the world series. Like, is that more of a success than the warriors? Uh, you know, yeah. You know, 73 and nine. Like, I don't know. I think that's like up for debate, but like, yeah, totally. The, the totally. principle is yes. 73 and nine is, it's pretty remarkable. My, my favorite streak is, is Cal Ripken streak. Um, uh-huh. Because I think that just for me, so vividly translates into like just coming. What was the together. streak? It was uh, the consecutive games. How many? 2,632. Wow. Like yeah. 17, good. 17 seasons. And again, like I don't think he ever wanted it to be about the streak. I think he just loved the game so much and loved the competition that he just came to work every day. You know, it's like, We've had off days. We've had days where we don't come into work. You know, we're sick. We, uh, you know, we, we want to take vacation or whatever. We want to take like a mental day. I'm taking a summer Friday tomorrow. Yeah. And there are, there are analogies to that in sports, even though people might yeah. not. It's not, you know, it, it's like taking a Sunday off, right? Because it's a, it's a day game after a night game. Like that's common. Uh-huh. But to play every game for 17 years just shows like how much, how beautiful it is to love what you do. Love mm-hmm. coming to the office. Yeah. The fact that this is, this is an athlete. So staying healthy is a big deal. That's part of his upkeep. So he takes it seriously. He's doing the right things to stay on the field. And 
I mean, 17 years. I remember first grade. Remember like our principal, Miss Martin? You remember at all? Oh, so, oh yeah, I remember. Helen, Helen, right? Uh, yeah, Helen yeah, Martin? Yeah. yeah. So I, so for, first grade, my first year in, in Wilton Public Schools, like oh, yeah, perfect, yeah. perfect attendance. Wow. And I got, I was six or seven years old and I got like a little card that said like, congrats, Adam, you had a perfect attendance, you know, $5 off at Scoops ice cream, whatever. Um, and I was it doesn't like, even get you a milkshake at Scoops ice yeah, cream, I don't just know. wanted to say. Maybe, maybe like a couple, <laughs> couple tootsie rolls. And, and I was like, I think I told my mom like, oh man, I could do this every year. This is awesome. No. First of all, like, I'll get sick, have a bad day, but Cal Ripken on a stage in front of all these people every single day for 17 years. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that's remarkable. I mean, the fact to your point, the fact that he never even got sick. I mean, I imagine he did and he played anyway, but or maybe he didn't. I have no idea, but that's just, yeah. What the streak only ended because he retired, right? No, 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 no. The streak ended because he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Take a day off. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What? I wonder what he, what he, what, you know, drove that? I don't know. I mean, there must be like a straw that broke the camel's back or something that just like, yeah, today's the day. Cause I don't think, wow. I don't think he was, I don't think he cared about the streak. I don't think when you're that, when you're that locked into your craft, I don't think you care about, you know, what other people think, or like in terms of like stats, you're not like a, you're not scoreboard watching or anything like that. You're doing what's best for you and what's best for the team and for the love of the game. So I don't think there was like 2,632. Cause again, it was like um, two or three years after he broke Garrick's streak. So but he's got to care about the streak a little bit, right? Maybe. I don't think he has a number, right? Like it's yeah. the same way I think about A-Rod who has 696 home runs. He knows that if he wants to be one of four players all time to get to 700, he could just play half the season. He was, you know, he, he could have played, he could play for the Marlins. I don't think that like the best athletes, the ones that are so honed in and determined to like do what's, what's right for their body. What's right. For yeah. Their yeah. Like if they're, if they're done, like, it's like, yeah, like I, I'm not, gonna like i'm not gonna i'm not put it this way i'm not if i have if i have 20 if i'm 20 percent, i'm not gonna go out in the field like yeah yeah it's not worth it it's not worth it no rifkin i I think it was a like a game on espn against the yankees i know chris berman made the call because his call was a no call when cal ripkin ran around the field he just Uh. he didn't say anything he just let cal ripkin run around the field high five players but yeah man i mean that streak itself commitment, love, perseverance. And I like that street because in embedded in its greatness are different, are different leaves of these virtues that I think we wish we all had to make us better people who wouldn't want to be more gritty, who wouldn't want to be better at committing, uh, who wouldn't want to be passionate about their work. So again, embedded in like this streak of greatness, one of the reasons why I love it is just, is all, are all the above. Yeah. That's like what it means to be yeah. human. Yeah. For sure. One more, one more streak I got for you. Yeah. I don't remember the exact streak, but it was uh, Jeremy Lin 
was it like 20 point, 20 point games or 30 point games? I just remember that was like, maybe not, maybe cause I'm a Knicks fan. It was amplified, but I remember that being like a country, a national, a nationwide, like stop, like everyone stopped and watched Jeremy Lin type of moment in a way that seems pretty rare in, uh, the regular season, which otherwise is like pretty regional and provincial, like that transcended Knicks and New York's fandom. I feel like people will maybe not again. I remember I was in Nashville at school, but I remember people I was with who were not Knicks fans caring and being like, Oh shit, it's eight o'clock. Like the Knicks are playing. How many points does Jeremy Lin have? Oh yeah. The Knicks Lakers Friday night ESPN game where he drops like 38. Yeah. Yes, yeah. the, the streak itself. Also, what was important is the Knicks were winning in that streak too. Yeah, exactly. And, and Knicks fans cared about that, but as far as like on a national level, you know, or an international level, because he's Asian, and also like the idea that he went to Harvard, he was undrafted. The story was so set up perfectly, but it was also like we never knew anything about him before, as far as his product on the court. This is like, this is, this is his start. This is like first impressions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and talk about an underdog. <laughs> oh my God. Everybody like, like passed up on him. Because of how, what? Yeah. So yeah. I was saying he was like an end of the bench guy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And how much of that was stereotyping or yeah. the idea yeah. that like at Harvard, he didn't have much competition for sure. But you know, there's, there's something, again, it's like the greatness versus fluke thing. There has to be some luck involved. I think um, Mike D'Antoni was a great fit for him when, when he had that streak. And I, I forgot if like he got hurt or Mello came back and like took the ball away from, from Lynn. But that was a special, that was a special time. And, and, and I think all those pieces had to align. I think you had to have the right coach. I think you had to have the right people. He was a leader and I think you had to have the right followers in terms of greatness. There are, there is a lot of randomness that's involved and I don't know if it's, uh, it's a fluke, but you know, Jeremy, and, and again, like Jeremy Lynn, the, the jury, the jury was out. Like we still had to figure out like what this was all about. Unfortunately, as his career went on, we're like, all right, maybe this was just a flash in the pan, but in terms of talking about like flukes, I think that like we we've seen this idea. There are fluky streaks that have happened before, right? So like I'll give you some example, like or fluky moments of greatness. Let's say so a guy like uh, Scooter Jeanette has a four home run game. Guys like Kenny Rogers and Philip Umber, you know, mediocre pitchers have had perfect games. Geno Smith, who I don't think any Jets fans have like care too much about fondly <laughs> he, he had a he had a game with a perfect qb rating that's crazy yeah i didn't know yep and then guys like Corey brewer and tony delk had 50 point games i think tony delk had like two in one week so like this whole notion of like we can be heroes just for one day but it it demonstrates that like greatness is open to everyone and I don't know if sports is a platform for sharing that kind of platitude or that aphorism, let's say, but that's what I see when I watch sports. When I, when I see people have like miracle games or like 
be heroes, like, you know, hit a game tie or game winning home run in the ninth inning of a world series. Like that to me, like that's a, that's beautiful in itself. It's just like, everybody can have their moment. Everybody can achieve that. Like, you know, highest heavens of happiness, but, but these streaks, let's go back to like the streaks or like the patterns where it's like four home run games or streaks of like 30, 40 point games for people who like over the course of the career probably aren't great. Would you say that those streaks, when you have a hot streak or whatever, do you think it's like a form of greatness or luck? Like, how do you balance those huh. two? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's, um, I mean, it's not, not fair to call it luck because yeah. just the, the preparation and skill that goes into that, it's sort of undersells it, but I do agree that it's a confluence of events. Certainly like it's not, uh, a lot of things have to happen for something like that. But, but I think to, you know, whether it's a moment of greatness, like to me, greatness is there's a consistency to it, right? That like to be great, it doesn't mean to do the exceptional sporadically. It has to Mm. be a sort of repeated exercise of excellence. And that's why I think sort of the, like the Jeremy Lynch streak is sort of interesting. Cause it first game, people are like this, nobody who, who drops however many points, but then he does it again. And you're like, Oh, okay. So is that a fluke or is he the real deal? And he does it a third time and you're like, okay, fuck. And then it's like, now he did it a fourth time. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know. Is Jeremy Lynn great? For those four or five games, he was great. But I think he's an interesting test case because it's not, he's not, it's certainly not a fluke. But obviously, you know, you think of greatness, you think of basketball, you think of LeBron James and Michael Jordan and Walt Chamberlain and Bill Russell, like guys who did it over the course of their career. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I don't, I think, yeah, I don't think it's a fluke, but I don't think you can call it greatness either because it's, it has to be somewhat repeated, I think. Yeah. And, and, and the Jeremy Lin thing, like we should stay on that. Cause there are like arbitrary streaks. Like I think, uh, this is so random, but like Bobby Sura of the Atlanta Hawks in like the early two thousands, I think he had like three or four straight games with a triple double. Huh? Like that's very bizarre. But with him, yeah. we also knew what he's capable of where Jeremy Lin. Yes. There's the aspect of the nobody, but the nobody yeah. hasn't been given a chance yet. So with yeah, that, exactly. So with that streak, and forget about all the like the socioeconomic, uh, the 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 social politics, the fact that he's very religious. Like he had a potpourri of highlights, as we were talking about earlier. He had game-winning shots. He had three pointers over Kobe. He he was he was winning with the Knicks. I think the Knicks fan. Yeah cared about that and like new york you know that's a storied franchise it's the new york team so they get a spotlight certainly absolutely absolutely the you know the stakes are higher when it's on prime time you know again dropping 38 over kobe and and lakers that streak had it all right that wasn't just yeah that wasn't just like four straight pitches that were down the center that you guess right happen to hit all them for home runs and that happened to be condensed in a game that was jeremy lynn did so many things did a broad spectrum of things throughout that streak. Totally. Um, totally. 
But you're saying, yeah, good. But yeah, I just think the thing you pointed out is the most important part, which is he wasn't, it wasn't like, so Geno Smith, we, Geno Smith was bad. And, uh, and then he had, you know, he has a perfect QB rating. And so it's like, okay, well, he was great this game, but he has, he has shown us who he is, unfortunately, as a Jets fan. Jeremy Lin, to your point, he hadn't played much. And so it wasn't a case of, oh, he's been bad and now he's good. It was a case of, oh, he's good and we haven't seen him play. So is it just a matter of like, this is going to be, that's probably why people cared so much because the stakes weren't, how long is this going to last? I mean, those were there, but it was also the stakes of, is this guy actually like an elite point guard and we're just now discovering him because he's been sitting at the end of the bench? You know what I mean? So it wasn't like how long, like, like Gino, it's like, we know this is a bit of a hot hand and it probably won't last. Whereas Jeremy Lin, it's like, this is a hot hand, but we don't know if he has a cold hand or if he's always this hot and we just haven't seen it before. Right. It's like, we know that the law of averages will catch up. We know that like, yes, with, 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 with Gino Smith, we know that poor like, Gino is getting, getting, getting just crushed in this episode. I'm just, I mean, you know, Gino Smith. I mean, I could think of Mets players like, like the guy Kirk Newen yeah. hit three home runs in a game, but I'm glad, I'm glad <laughs> Gino. And, uh, so yeah, with like Geno Smith, it's like Geno Smith is like the, the comparison is like okay, he's got the hot hands, hot hand. You know, he's landed on uh, red ten times, but we also know he's yeah. landed on black. You know, previous twenty, and like with Jeremy Lin, it's like oh shit, he's landed on red ten times. I don't know if this roulette table is is skewed. I don't know if it's <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. I'm waiting to see. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. So I mean, Jeremy Lin is that's that's a really good streak, and and like streaks fa- fascinate me. Again, it's like combining the highlight versus the streak. I don't know like what made me think about this, but for highlights, I just thought about. I mean, you're a soccer fan, right? Casual, like, you know, like Tim yeah. Howard, the U.S. soccer goalie. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he scored a goal when he was in the Premier League. Like he kicked the ball far. It was very <laughs> windy. Went over the, the goalie's head. And he scored a goal. That's a moment. It's like if he did that for like four straight games, it's like, okay, what the fuck's going on? It's like that same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. no idea how my mind got to Tim Howard. I don't know if I just had a flashback when you played soccer. I don't know what it was, but I just. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, that is a specific moment in a game. Like, that's like, that's like Jeremy Lynn hitting a crazy three pointer. Yeah, which, which you know, he, so it's a little different than sustained. Yeah, which he did. He did the national TV on ESPN three pointer in the corner against the Lakers, and then yeah. for like local like MSG like MSG network, I, he hit a, a pretty much a buzzer beater. There's like point four seconds left. They hit a buzzer beater against the, the Raptors, a three pointer. Oh yeah, I remember that right at the end. He walked up. Yeah, yeah, yep. And I'm wondering, like, okay, so we're talking about. Jeremy Lin like streaks where like we're trying to we're, we're trying to figure out if this is if this is who he is or someone like the Geno Smith example but for like a QB rating a perfect QB rating or like in baseball you pitch a perfect game right you're one of like 20 people ever to do it what do you think the mindset is the next day or the next start of one of those players during the during the, like during the next game what do you think what do you think the preparations like you know, yeah, I, huh. yeah, 
if you want to get psychological about it, I assume most people are trying to figure out ways they can control the uncontrollable and knowing how superstitious athletes are, I would imagine that their preparation the next game is how can I do everything the exact same so that I have the exact same outcome? Because, you know, we love that sort of linear cause and effect. If I do A, then B. And if I do B, then C. Superstition. Um, so having never, having never been in um, a situation where I have come off a resounding professional athletic success, I can't say for certain how they would behave at their next outing. But I would imagine it would be like, let's do everything the exact same. You, you think more so than like the, yeah, I'll just play it off as like, that was fun. I'm going to go back to be myself. Or do you feel like it's like a golfer, right? Like you have a good round and you're like, I finally fixed it. I finally figured it out. Like, you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe they're, yeah, maybe they, they're going to it with the, um, maybe control the uncontrollable is not right. I mean, athletes also, you know, a great plat- athlete platitude is control what you can control. So maybe they're like, I'm just going to, maybe either like I'm doing the same thing I always do. It just happened that last night I scored 50 and then they do it again. And they're like, all right, well, maybe I scored 50 again, but like I'm sticking to my routine. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. What do you think? I think, so there's the, within the like actual achievement, like there are great players who have had four home run games or have had like five touchdown games or whatever. And I think those people know to keep a, a level head. They know what got them to greatness. Like Randy Johnson has thrown a perfect game, right? Like he, he, he knows what has gotten him to be consistent and consistently great. And maybe he was like due for a perfect game, but he never yeah. thought of, you know, he never thought about it. And I don't think that was his mindset. That would be his mindset going to his next start. And, you know, I, thought I was at actually at uh, David Cohn's perfect game in 1999. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. We, we attended that game. And I, being eight years old at the time, I was like, oh, my God, he's going to be a Hall of, Hall of Fame. Because I don't have any foresight at that age. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. He's going to be amazing. And, you know, David Cohn had a David Cohn-esque career, you know, pretty, pretty good. Not bad, you know, but nothing special. I think for players like him, so the non-Randy Johnson, but the players like like him, um, I think that they might, you know, if you if you're not level-headed, I think you have to, you know, go to your manager or your coach, you know, whether it's a pitching coach, hitting coach, sets expectations. It's like, what did you see? Let's review this. Yeah. If yeah. you if you're able to articulate what you saw differently, if you stepped if you were stepping in the batter's box half an inch half an inch closer to the plate, if you were stepping off the rubber differently, if you were putting it, if you know what you did, then you might have turned a corner. Again, perfection and this highest peak of like statistical achievement, that's not sustainable because history will tell you it's not. But I think it's up to the, the managers, the players to like, you know, take a step back, reflect on this high achievement and think about, you know, what you learned from it. Cause there is a lot of luck, but the beautiful thing is that like, 
if you learn from that luck, you can turn it into skill and change your approach. Uh-huh. So yeah. I think there is a mindful aspect when you do have one of those peak moments that's going to be in the record books or a no name is going to have a little plaque somewhere in the hall of fame being like this person scored 70 points in the basket. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And, and, and just like going through like the idea of what it means to be great and defining a career, you know, you clay, I'm curious, would you rather be a compiler of stats with mm-hmm. longevity uh-huh. or someone who is great for a short period? I think I'd be, I think I would go with the former because I, I don't know. Some to me, again, just coming back to consistency. I just think there's some, something to me about, and there's something impressive and aspirational to me about the duration of someone who can maintain a, a level of athletic excellency, even if you're even if you're a role player, that's still a level of athletic excellency because you're playing at the most elite level possible over an extended period of time. It just requires like a patient to go back to your Cal Ripken point. It requires a patience and a dedication and a sort of like discipline that is uncommon, I think. And that's not to say that like, yeah, you have like David Tyree. I I don't really think David Tyree had a a memorable career, but everyone will remember that catch. I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of people will remember that catch. And certainly there are guys who played 11 years in the NFL who I'm not going to remember. But I just think if it were me, I think looking back and being like, man, I managed to eke out like 11 years when people didn't you know, at a, in a profession and at a level that most people can't get to. I think that's pretty cool. I mean, like, you know, a guy who I really admire and was the best at his sport was JJ Redick. I mean, JJ Redick was the best basketball player in college and much to my chagrin because he's a Duke guy <laughs> and he has He's had a phenomenal NBA career and a much better career than I think people expected him to have because he was mostly a three-point shooter at Duke. And people were like, he's going to come to the NBA. He's going to be undersized. He's not going to be able to shoot the Mm -hmm. way he does at Duke. And and yet, I I actually don't – I think maybe he's in like year 14 or something. This will be the first year he hasn't made the playoffs. That's Um, mind-boggling. So like that – and that's – and you know, and that's remarkable. And that goes to JJ's sort of consistency and dedication and focus. I think if I had a career like him, I'd be very proud. Even if I were, well, you know, he's, and that's sort of understating him. He's a very important and a very good role player. Even if you were the 10th guy on the bench for 10 years, that's still pretty amazing. Absolutely. And like Kyle Korver comes to mind too. He's been around for, for yeah. a really long time. Yeah. I think in terms of like more how you would define greatness. Like Terrell Davis had like a couple good years that was amazing. Yeah. And Sean Alexander. Sean Alexander. That's a, that's really good. Yeah. It's a real, that's a really good one. That's like the 2000 version. And I think like in, in baseball, what the hall of fame is, has been communicating, you know, with, with letting people like, you know, Lee Smith or Harold Baines is that like, None of these guys, you know, were perennial all-stars. None of these guys would like, yeah. wow, you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't take your kid to a game and be like, Oh my God, like we got to go. Like Harold Payne's is, is playing. We have to see him. 
But <laughs> there's something special about being consistent, playing 20 to 25 years. And yeah. you know, I, I use the word compile. I think it sounds negative, but like building up a strong, a strong career is probably the better way to say it. And that's what he did. And yeah, I think some people want one thing and some people want the other, like you're, you're a writer. So I wonder from like your writing career, how this would play. Right. So would you rather, I, I'm trying to think of like good exa- you, you're, uh, you're acumen with, you know, literature is a little stronger than mine. So I'm, you might know like who the one hit wonders are, but I, I think about like, you could be like JK Rowling comes to mind, but like she's written like seven books of Harry Potter. So it's not the same. Would you ha- rather have something that's very m- memorable and, you know, not have any like so-so articles or let's say you write a book. So, so like not have any so-so things, or would you rather be like, I think like Woody Allen, who is still a writer, but he's a movie maker. He's made like 30 films and he's made one a year for like 30 years. And obviously he's like a few great ones, but then there's a lot of ones that are like pretty mediocre. He was consistent, but he, he took a lot of losses with the, with the magnanimous wins. Or like a Stephen King, who is a great author, has a lot of great books, but he's also going to have a lot of like, okay ones. Do, would you rather... Like, how do you think about the longevity aspect versus like the one hit wonder thing? Well, in terms of your legacy as a writer, how would you resonate with both those options? And what is, what's your thought process when evaluating those options? I think all you, this sort of goes back to control you can control. But all you can do, and maybe this is a platitudinous answer, but all you can really do is show up, have the discipline to show up every day, right? By the way, it's, and, only, a, it's only a platitude if you don't believe it. Like if you believe it, Clay, then like that's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you yeah. live by that, yeah. then like, I love it. Well, I try to live by it. It's hard. I don't do it every day. But, but, I, but my point is, you know, you've you got to just keep showing up and doing the work. And I think trying to, to set out to like have, I mean, writing in particular would be like, I'm going to set out and have a successful book. It's a little bit out. It's different because it's a little bit out of your hands, though. I don't think it's totally different from sports, but like it's, it is a little bit out of your hands because there's no scoreboard, right? So, it's not like I'm going to go out and score 30 points, but all you can really do is show up and do the work and the greatness has to follow from that. Like the whole, you can't control whether or not people think what you did is, is great. All you can do again is just the work. So I guess my answer is I would rather like focus on the longevity and, and half, you sort of have to have the faith that by investing in longevity and having the sort of Calrican dedication and, and do it and grinding and doing the work that maybe one day, if you're lucky, the greatness will follow. But yeah, I think setting out to be like, I'm going to try to write a bestseller and, and then uh, fade back into the shadows. I don't know. I think that seems a little bit more difficult and yeah, I guess it does go back to control. You control, you control your, your dedication and your discipline and then the rest sort of has to follow from that. Got it. And I, and I, cause I, I guess when it comes to like writing articles or writing certain pieces, like, yeah, you can't, you can't just come in with a mindset of like, I'm going to write the best thing. That's for your editors. That's for, you know, the, the public, that's for the people who you're covering. That's what for them to, that's for them to think about it. Like, 
and and I guess you too, you can also be like, oh shit, like that was good. Like there's a lot of yeah. variables that go in to like actually thinking about like what what is a good piece because while you can't like I don't know you can't really quantify like whether Clay Skipper thinks he wrote something good or not you know, <laughs> you you know you know if you were on that day or if you or if you were on that article um, for sure for yeah. sure but I think it's easier to forgive yourself a bad article or bad whatever if you're like yeah it was just an off day right like. If JJ Reddick is putting up his shots every day for 14 years and one day he goes 0 for 11, you know, it's easier to be like, well, shit, I had a bad day, but I was, I control what I can control. I showed up every day and did the work as opposed to going 0 for 11 and being like, well, I haven't been in the gym in two weeks and I just sort of been like, you know, like it's easy, it's easier to forgive yourself that the sort of slip ups that you can fall back on. I did the preparation, I put in the work, but the result was not what I wanted. But sometimes you can't control that. Right. Only when it trends, only when it's a pattern, do you like have to go back to the drawing board and see what's up. They're going to be yeah. those 0 for 11 games or like, you know, you'll miss a couple, a couple free throws if you're like a 90% shooter. Like those things were happening. That's just like the law of large numbers. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Totally. Uh, but I think that, you know, you're allowed to make mistakes. You put in the, you put in the effort, you get, you, you, you know, what motivates yourself, you know, about your work ethic, you, you surround yourself with the right people and the right mentors to keep you honest. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, again, like you want the longevity, you want the career and it's okay. It's okay for you. If there are some duds along the way, article wise, like you'll yeah. accept that as you're saying. Yeah, I think so. Because at the end of the day, like, yeah, I mean, I have no idea what it's like to <laughs> be a bestseller or have like, you know, be great or nor would I presume to think that I ever would have a sense of that. But I have found in my very short career that that I am most sort of content or generate my own sort of self-respect most when I do the work, right? Because then I can fall back on, well, I put in the hours and I feel like the responsibility is to showing up and not to the end product necessarily. Not to say the end product doesn't matter, but it just, you, you are sort of your responsibilities to, to have the discipline to keep. If you're Cal Ripken going to the, going to the baseball diamond every day, or if you're Brett Favre going to the locker room every day and everything else sort of has to follow from that. So I think, yeah, I think longevity is something worth striving for. Absolutely. And one of the things that, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of capture in this specific episode is the idea of like evaluating and assessing greatness and well-being in terms of whether something's a, a hot streak or a fluke versus whether you're able to look at a certain trend or a pattern and create some kind of, you know, statement or, or overarching theme from that consistency where I can say, hey, at the end of his career, you know, Play Skipper was one hell of a writer. Or at the end, you know, when it's all said and done after 20 years, mm -hmm. so and so was a very solid ball player and made my team and like his teammates better. Because we can get, because streaks and slumps are one thing. And I think they come and go. Again, reminding ourselves about the, the oscillations of, of life. There are highs and there are lows. Nothing necessarily trajects straight up. It's a lot of yeah. and now wave, you know waves and all that stuff. So yeah, I mean that was one of the themes to understand 
highlights being able to capture a moment, but also streaks as an assessment of greatness and consistency. Before we wrap up, just one final question from you. And I ask this to everybody. I always call it, I don't know if you grew up watching South Park. Like, hmm. so, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. So they do this very pandering, like the whole cliche is like, you have to learn from some, like every day it's like, here's a lesson that you have to learn. And Stan Marsh, you know, says, you know what? I learned something today. So I call it like the <laughs> South Park sappy cliche question. But the final question is like, Clay, what did you learn from today's episode? What did you, it could be about yourself. It could be a new way to analyze or interpret sports or, or just about your own fandom in general. So I think today I learned, I think the thing that's standing out to me is about highlights. And I just had never really spent much time unpacking so sort of carefully why we enjoy watching highlights. And I do think, you know, I think your point about it's a combination of an emotion and a lesson and also this idea that it's like a certain point in time. And so you're not sort of watching just the highlight, but you're watching everything that is sort of alive in the atmosphere around that highlight, both in the frame and also outside the frame, right? You know, we compared it to movies, but a movie sort of exists in a vacuum. Like it exists in the context of the movie, but a sports moment is part of real life. And so it's unfolding in the context of that game, but it's also unfolding, you know, in the context of a sort of more general milieu and atmosphere. I mean, to you brought up Mike Piazza in the, in the post 9-11 home run, like, we remember that and we remember the tableau surrounding that and we remember our place in that tableau. And I think that is, um, is very cool. And is also just like speaks more largely to what this podcast is getting into, which is sort of about fandom and why it matters to us and how that, you know, how for people like you and me who care so much about sports, it's this thread that weaves throughout the tapestry of our lives. And is sort of like this, this thing we can look back on and see how it it unfolds along with the narrative of our life and that's pretty cool and maybe that's why highlights are so are so fascinating in a way i appreciate that and it is uh something that's a backbone of our you know getting up to watch sports center all these years is and you know just catching up on games is, is is highlights and you're right it is a part of who we are and I appreciate your insight, Clay. Again, thank you for coming on the show. I think you have a brilliant mind. I love your your blend of sports and psychology. So thank you again, and uh, hope to have you on again soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Hopefully it's not another uh, 15 years before we see each other. Hope not. Take care. You too.